This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst magazine. I'm John Tolson and tonight's guest is star of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Gunnar Hansen. We were talking about the new remake um, that's coming out in 3D. Yeah. Uh, and established that you, you have a, a role in the, in, the, in the remake. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yes, I mean, they, they're being very quiet about what, how, you know, what this film is, but I can say that my character is one of the Sawyer clan, uh, so one of the family, and uh, it's a small part, but the, I think the great thing for me is that for anyone who knows the first film and knows that I played Leatherface, then there's a certain irony in what my character is saying uh, in, in my scene. Right, that sounds very enigmatic. I think we'll, obviously we'll have to wait and see uh, yeah. in, in January. Um, um, can you tell us a little bit perhaps about um, the, the character of Leatherface? Because I understand that you modelled him partly on um, what we used to call mentally retarded children. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh the problem I had, uh, I was very inexperienced as an actor, and, and the problem I had was, uh, you know, very obviously that I didn't have a voice or a face uh, to use. And so uh, I realized the only thing I had was my body, and I was trying to figure out a way to um, make a character out of just my movements and how I held my body. So... Um, there was a residential school uh, in Austin, uh, and it was for, like you say, what we call retarded persons now. Uh, we're on that euphemism treadmill, so I'm not quite sure what the right word, what the right term is now. Uh, and I went up there, and I had been there before because my mother worked at one of the clinics, and I had actually applied for a job there once. And uh, I just went up, and I it was open. Uh, campus that is people you could see people walking on the campus it was not you know people weren't locked in their cells or something i mean it was a open campus people walked around and i just started watching the way people moved and trying to find particular movements or postures that uh worked for me and uh tried to assemble some sort of uh set that uh created a character but and i had to be careful because i didn't want to just sort of a you know take a random series of physical ticks and think that was a character but i that's what i did and i spent a couple of days watching people and trying out different movements and then um one day on that on that second day there were a couple of staff people walking down the sidewalk on the on the ground so i just i went into my leatherface mode and walked past them, and it was real clear. I mean, once they sort of glanced at me in passing as if I must be another resident at the school. So that's when I figured I had him where I wanted him. Well, there's a moment in the original film that I've always wondered about, which is after Leatherface has killed Jerry, and he's on his own, and kind of sits with his head in his hands, and it's almost a kind of a moment of 
empathy with the character for the audience. And I just wondered, thinking back now, if you can remember, um, what was the intention of that little scene? And was it actually scripted or was it something that was developed during the shooting? Yeah, it is scripted. I mean, that scene, that whole business of running to the window, the details are not, but in the script, it's basically he runs the window and looks out frantic. Uh, And Toby said to me, now, you know, you're there because you're wondering where are these people coming from? And so that's what I was trying to do was trying to, you know, I realized this is the one moment in the film where you really get some insight into Leatherface. I mean, there are other things that he does with the family that, you know, feed you little bits of information, but this is the big moment. And the whole idea was, where are these people coming from? Because one way to look at this film is, it's a Hansel and Gretel story. Yeah. And, you know, the family is the witch, the, the cannibalistic witch, and these intruders are showing up. So if you, if you think of that as a possible way of looking at the film then you can also possibly see the family as the protagonists and the kids as the antagonists. It's the kids who are invading the family. Because up to this point, nobody has done anything against the kids except when the kids have come into the house. The first three people are, who Leatherface dies all trespass in the house. And... So his reaction is, where are these people coming from? What is, you know, why are these people invading us when they're just trying to you know, live their lives in the woods? Uh, after that, Leatherface goes out, but what he does is he simply lies in wait because he knows there must be more coming, and he just lies in wait, and that's when he kills Franklin. So I, I, that's, anyway, the way I looked at it when we were filming the story. So when you were actually filming, making the film then, you, did you have discussions with Toby Hooper about the fact that... Uh, you know, the the cannibal family were to be shown in a sympathetic light? No, no, he, he didn't. I mean, this whole idea of the, can, of the Hansel and Gretel, that, you know, in my mind, that came a lot later, and I actually have been uh, talked to Kim, who co-wrote the script, Kim Henkel, and we talked about this very thing just a couple of months ago because, you know, I'm working on this book about Chainsaw. But, so that certainly was his intention. But at the time, and I think what we have is consistent with that intention. But at the time, no, I was just thinking this character has been invaded and he's wondering where all these people are coming from. Uh, uh, Toby never talked about trying to make the family look sympathetic at all. Um, but I think it is, there is a sort of ambig- ambiguity or ambivalence in the story about who are, who are the victims here. And I think clearly the teenagers or, or, you know, the young crowd, they're the victims. But there is this element of, you know, of sort of turning the story around, of of thinking of the the family as a bit of put upon, you know, maybe as a better expression. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Quite a few people are still convinced that, that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually a sort of fictionalized documentary or based based on a true story. Yeah. And I think you've spoken about that before, that you've met people who've actually claimed to have uh, known the real Leatherface who's, you know, been incarcerated and so on. But what do you attribute that to, that 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 feeling amongst a, uh, quite a few members of the audience that this is based well, upon a true story? I think part of it is... Uh the film has a documentary feel to it. 
So at, at one level, the audience is sort of thinking that this is, but we're actually watching it happen. And that the, you know, and I, I think if they were pressed about it, they would go, no, no, I understand. But there is that element. And the other thing is at the beginning, you've got the voiceover saying these horrible things that happened on, what was it, August 8th or August 18th or whatever it was, 1973, which is, you know, leads gullible member, audience members into, into believing it's a true story. Of course, we were filming on that date. Um, it, it's, it's like that, that old joke about in the old Wild West days when these melodramas would travel to the West and perform at the local opera house and the danger they had from the cowboys taking a shot at the, at the bad guy because they were so convinced they were actually watching a real, you know, a real, a real story. And I don't know if that actually happened, but it is akin to that kind of feeling that people are very gullible to it. And I, and part of it is that the characters seem very real to them. Um, it may also be that uh, people just desperately want to believe this crap. <laughs> sure, there's there's also quite a lot of text and folklore in the film, isn't there? Uh, and so, yeah. and some of it is kind of inverted, as you say, um, as a kind of a fairy tale. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Your native Texan yourself, I understand. Or? Oh no, oh no, no! I'm from Iceland originally. You're from Iceland, right? Okay. Yeah, I moved to Texas when I was 11, so I grew up there and went to college there, but then I left. Um, yeah, I mean, it has a Texas feel. I mean, maybe that's part of this feeling is that, you know, there are people. That, you know, <laughs> a lot of people walk out of the theater and they're saying there are people like this out there. Sure. And I think part of that sense that this is might be based on a real story is that it's very plausible that there are people like there like this, especially in Texas. You know, a lot of people think, oh, this is, this is Texas. First they killed John Kennedy. Now this. So I can see that as part of feeding that that uh, that kind of misconception. And certainly, yes. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is the Texas cliche, isn't it? You know, the 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 yahoos in the out in the plains sure. um, or in this case in the hill country <laughs> so after you made the film uh, i understand that you moved to maine yeah and kind of dropped out of the film business for a little while yeah so so when did you actually become aware that the film had be, was becoming a phenomenon well uh, you know i moved here uh Oh, I don't know, nine months after the film came out. Um, and at that point, there was still just a lot of stink about the movie. I mean, uh, people were, you know, critics hated the movie. Um, you know, it was very much dismissed by the public, or, you know, by the critical public. Uh, viewers loved the movie, but certainly it was, you know, among those who supposedly told us what was good or bad, you know, this movie was despised. So I didn't think much of the movie. I mean, I mean, in the sense of I didn't give it much thought. Uh, to me, it was just something we did, and I was glad we'd done it. And then living here for a lot of long time, I was never—I didn't even own a television, so I, I n- never was part of sort of that mainstream culture. I didn't know what was going on. In 1987, I went out to LA to work on a movie, and it was the first time. Uh, that I had really been back on the scene. And uh, I noticed that, well, on the second day of shooting, one of the one of the actresses came up to me and said, gosh, Gunnar, you're actually a nice guy. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, 
you know, given the part you played, I just, we just all assumed you were an asshole. And I realized that in the first day of filming, no one except the director ever spoke to me. <laughs> and that began, made me start to suspect that, you know, there was more to this story than I had thought there was. But then the real clincher, when I realized how huge this movie was, was when I was watching television one night, and I was watching the show Cheers, which happens, you know, takes place in a bar in, in Boston. And uh, the Kirstie Alley character has been asked to house-sit a big estate in the country over the weekend. And so the entire episode, she's just lording it over everyone on the show about how she's going to be out at the estate for the weekend. And the last act of the show is when she gets out there and she's frightened as it gets to be dark because all of a sudden she's in this big old house alone. So she runs around and locks all the doors and the windows and then comes back into the living room and when she sits down she hears a noise. And the last line of the episode she says, oh Leatherface, I hope that's not you. <laughs> and that was the moment I realized that Chainsaw was huge because not only did she make a reference to the movie, but there's no explanation of that line to the audience. It's real clear that the writers expect that everyone in the audience knows just what she's talking about. And that's when I realized that the movie had really entered the culture. Well, almost as sort of notorious as the film itself is the, the business surrounding um, its financing and um, the kind of the way that Vortex and yourselves and pretty much everyone involved in the film was was kind of screwed over by the distributor, um, yeah. which which you had you had to sort of enter into sort of legal action against them to try and get some money back. Like, I just wondered, have you have you or the any of the other ca- the cast actually seen any money from the original film? Oh, we see a little bit. Uh, we get an occasional check. I mean, the first few years, we got nothing. And then over the years, once that whole business with, with Bryanston, the original distributor, was settled, and it was settled simply by Bryanston filing bankruptcy and, and essentially guaranteeing that they never paid a penny. Uh, but it went through, you know, it was in court, and then finally the producers regained the rights and it was re-released. So we occasionally get a check, but it's never been very much. Uh, Forty years worth. Oh, I've averaged um, less than two hundred dollars a year. Right. So it's you know whoever whoever made all the money. I'm sure they're sitting on a beach right now in Rio. You know, and I'm paying for that drink they're sipping on. Well, let's hope that some of them are in jail because I understand that a number of the the distributors did uh, end up being incarcerated. Yes, and and in fact, the fellow, I believe this, I I mean, I think this is true, although I I have no direct evidence. I've I've heard that the fellow who was actually the guy running Bryanston, the Piranha guy, you know, we called him Piranha, that Piranha was actually, Piranha was actually killed, that he was shot by a rival, you know, gang member. And uh, as a, I guess as a family cleanup or something. But so you know, some of them have died, uh, not naturally. Right. So they really were involved in the mafia, weren't they? It was, yes. Oh, yes. It's they not were just a, it's not just a story. Um. So Toby Hooper made the the the, the sequel. Um. I think 
1986, 1987. Were you yeah. involved in that at all? I mean, you don't no, actually appear I was in not. it. Um, it um, they approached me about being in it, but um, and I would have been very interested in being in it, but, but their attitude basically was, it's a guy in a mask. Anybody can play the part. And uh, they offered me union minimum. And there was no negotiation. I mean, as soon as I said, "Well, I'd, you know, I'd like you to think about what, what, you know, what am I worth to you, and make me an offer that reflects that," uh, that was the end of the negotiation. So uh, that's why I had nothing to do with the movie. It's just that it was very clear to them that this was uh, simply a way of making money, and they didn't care. They just didn't care. And I think it was too bad because I think that. Uh, you know, Bill Johnson, who's a really great guy, he played Leatherface in the second one. You know, he had a terrible disadvantage, which is the writer of the second one clearly had never paid much attention to who Leatherface was. So that the Leatherface in two, as written, is an entirely different character. Uh, you know, a different personality. Yeah. And I think that that meant that it became very hard to play the character because you really couldn't use the original Leatherface as a model, as an actor, you just had to start make him, you know, make him up all over again. I, I've always suspected that the Chop Top character that Bill Mosley played so well, that that was originally intended to be the hitchhiker, yeah, patched up after being run over by the truck, which would explain the plate. And then when it became clear that that Ed wasn't going to roll over and do it for nothing, uh, they had to simply bring in another actor and you know change a few lines of dialogue. Okay, well, thank you very much, Gunnar. Oh, sure. Thank okay. you, thank you very much for your time, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing the new re- remake and uh, seeing you in it, um, playing your playing the new role. But there's also, am I right in saying that there is actually original footage from the yes, from the first is. film in there? Yeah, they've. I don't know how much footage there is. I, I think there might be you know three or four minutes of footage that they've. Um, They've done some sort of montage with it to, I think, essentially establish the story up to this point. Because this movie is a sequel to the original movie. It's as if all those others had never happened. So I think they use the, the footage as a kind of way of setting up the beginning of the new movie. Well, that sounds really exciting to be able to know that there's going to be a, a, a new a series of sequels that are perhaps more faithful to the spirit of the original. Yeah. I hope so. And they certainly tried. I mean, my feeling was when I was on set was that they, they really tried to, to create something that was true to the feel and the spirit of the original. So I was real excited about that. And believe me, I'm really looking forward to seeing this movie too. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D is released in cinemas in January 2013. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay, stay scared. scared. You're right. You're right. You're right.